morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our listeners all over the world. I'm Barry Muller, your host for the RevAmp podcast. Today, I have Jay McBain, the chief analyst at Canalis. Um, you'll correct the, the pronunciation, Jay. And um, Jay, I've been following for some time on LinkedIn, uh, and I was telling him before, and I, I want to tell our listeners also, um, he creates some killer content. When he was at Forrester, he created some uh, long content that, um, at, for Forrester on their blog. He creates these landscapes where I, I was just, I would go for, spend way too long on them. And it wasn't even part of my job position to look at, to read these. Uh, and he writes some informative comments even and posts on LinkedIn. Uh, I can honestly say that it's not, um, that when Jay writes, it's not to make noise, but to provide real value and real insights, which I think is a unique, um, is unique sometimes for our industry. Jay, um, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. I'm really excited to have you to go deep into partnerships and channel sales. Uh, Jay, tell us a bit more about yourself. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and, and that great introduction. Uh, I spent my 28 year career mostly in sales, carrying a bag of, of some type or another, uh, but working for companies that partnerships were integral in those sales uh, before the sale happened, at the point of sale, as well as post sale. And um, you know, after that, I was a CEO of a software company who built channel software and uh, was an analyst for five years. So I've had a chance to look at this part of the industry in depth from multiple different angles. And again, just happy to join. Great. Um, and I think one thing that we were discussing before, I, I should have been recording 15 minutes ago when we first started talking, um, is just how integrated channel sales is and partnerships is to regular sales. Maybe you could tell us a bit more on why every person, let's say if they're a RevOps person or a sales ops person listening to this podcast, why um, everything that you're researching matters not um, matters to their career and matters to their position. Yeah, absolutely. So I always start off and say that in the world economy, in world GDP, 75% of world trade flows indirectly. You bought your last car from a dealer. You bought your last TV from a retailer. You bought your last jar of peanut butter from a grocer. Everything you do in your personal life and mostly your business life happens indirectly, working with independent resellers and agents and retailers and brokers and dealers, et cetera. So, you know, why is this important? If you look in the technology industry and you just go down to the biggest companies, the trillion dollar size companies are all ecosystem driven platforms. They rely on partnerships, not only for uh, customer influence, getting the customers uh, to the dance, getting them on the dance floor, for that first 30 days in a subscription model, and then keeping them dancing all night long, every 30 days forever. But they rely on partners for co-innovation. They rely on partners for value creation, that last mile at the customer. They rely on partnerships for uh, network effects, you know, finding deals that they would never find through a normal sales or marketing model. So partnerships are, are a big part of the industry. And you know, the, one of the biggest companies like Microsoft 96% of their deals are partner assisted. So they just realized that as a salesperson, as a RevOps person, every deal is going to have perhaps upwards of seven partners be part of it throughout that entire journey. Wow. That's, 
That's crazy. So many cool stats there. Um, seven partners. That's a lot of partners um, to be part of that journey. And then do you see this trend going most, like we mentioned Microsoft. Microsoft's one of the biggest tech companies in the world. Do we see this trend also with some of the smaller companies, um, these type of working with partners in an ecosystem? When I, when I say smaller, I mean post-product market fit, 250 employees. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big changes after 40 years in this industry is we've always looked in, and salespeople tend to look at partners as resellers, as where the money changes hands. And in the tech industry, about 64% of every dollar changes hands through partners. And so that's why it's become so synonymous with the channel, if I put that in air quotes. And we're on video, so I guess I can put that in real quotes. Uh, so what's happening now is every company, um, whether you're at 250 people, whether you're at 25 people, whether you're at two people still in the garage, as you develop your product, as you develop your marketing and your sales, and your longer term customer success strategies, as you're building your subscription or consumption-based company, as you're building your product-led growth company, as you're building your usage or value-based company, whether you intend to sell through a marketplace, whether you intend to sell direct, it doesn't matter as much anymore. All of the other elements of partnerships, which are the tech alliances you need to build, are the strategic and business alliances that you need to sell, to work on those alliances before the point of sale. Your customer goes through 28 moments on average between the point they have a problem and the point they make vendor selection. You have 28 chances to get in front of them and get endorsed in a reasonable way. If you think that one of those 28 moments is coming your way, you may have succeeded in marketing, but 27 of them are going a different direction. The way you understand those moments, the way you partner up with those people who own the moments, something like this podcast is highly influential to a certain type of buyer. If you're selling to that buyer, it behooves you for you, you for example, to say something nice you know, about my company. So that's a completely different view of partnerships than a reseller, signing up a bunch of resellers. At the point of transaction, for example, Big change is happening where, you know, again, two thirds to three quarters of the world economy is going indirect. That's changing. We're seeing big marketplaces. Those big companies we, uh, we talked about, the big trillion dollar companies are building really powerful marketplaces. And, and you know, companies are building their own internal marketplaces, API driven marketplaces in this new embedded white labeled world. The average customer today in technology is buying seven different things on one deal. And so who is putting that together, you know, procurement and provisioning together, it's changing pretty radically. So we got to move away from the channel being this synonymous with resale because they may assist in that model as opposed to take the customer's money. And then finally, all the, that's when the fun starts. Now you've got them for the first 30 days, you've got to renew them. And you got to focus on retention for life. Get that customer for life, CLV. And what does that mean? I got to drive adoption of my product. Doesn't get adopted, I don't get renewed. I got to drive uh, integrations and stickiness. I got to make it habit forming 
If you're in the consumer business, you got to make it habit forming. If you're in the B2B world where, you know, it starts to get deeper in the stack where they can't move through processes or workflows or business logic without your product connected deeper into the organization. And then finally, you got to focus on upsell, cross-sell and enrichment. Most deals today are one as pilots. So who's going to move that $30,000 deal to $300,000? Then who's going to drive a global cross department into a million dollar deal? And guess what? I mentioned seven partners, but there are all kinds of partnerships that drive that pre, during, and post customer journey. And if you're thinking that you own that customer journey, or if you think you don't need help, you're going to be on the outside looking in to competitors who do believe in partnerships at every stage of the journey and making sure that your RevOps process, your sales ops process, all of your sales and marketing, you may be in an ABM approach, account-based marketing approach, whichever approach you're taking, there's going to be partners all wrapped around every section of that deal. Hmm. So for me, when I'm listening to this, it sounds, just sounds like doing business. <laughs> and we're just talking about it with, uh, with uh, someone that is an expert with partners, but it sounds like it's the same idea just with, a, with working with more people. Uh, like, like in a business, you want to create stickiness. Usually it was just you creating that stickiness, but now it's also with partners. Is that a correct assessment? It is, but it's it's more. Um, uh, it takes more work. Mm-hmm. It's not just this assumption that there's going to be a bunch of people at the table, and I have to have the right tools necessary to collaborate and communicate and things like that. Um, you've you've got to actually um, look at your potential buyer, and your potential buyer might be a particular type of buyer. Now, for example, if you sell software today, sixty five percent of software is sold outside of IT. So is your buyer, you know, the head of marketing in a company? And if that's true, the head of marketing in many companies now spends more money on technology than the head of technology. So if that's your buyer, there's a bunch of different influencers around that buyer who are potential partners of yours. There's a couple hundred thousand digital agencies, for example, that might be a potential partner of yours. And there's 8,000 companies on the MarTech stack who might be potential partners of yours. Probably very few of them compete with you directly. So it's a different way of viewing the market. And once you you define that buyer, or it's a sub-industry, there's 297 sub-industries. You're going after a mid-sized clinic with 50 doctors. Okay, what kind of partners wrap around that opportunity? In the US, it might be HIPAA and high-tech compliant as you move from state to state or province to province or country to country in Europe and Asia, Pac, things change pretty radically. And the partnerships change based on your go-to-market, based on the TAM you're trying to get to. So that's two, the buyer, the sub-industry, the geography I just mentioned, the sector size and segment. You know, if you're going after SMB, there's six kinds of SMB. Sell into a nine, a 49, or a 499 are completely different conversations. And they have completely different partnerships that wrap around them. And then product areas, there's 250 different product areas. I mentioned just in marketing, there's probably about 100 different product areas. So there's partnerships that wrap around different product specialties. Who's going to implement and integrate? Who's going to secure it and make it compliant? Who's going to do the data and automation? There's all kinds of long-term services that wrap around specific product areas. 
And then finally, there's delivery models. Is this going to be delivered in a managed services type element? Is this project-based? Is it more of an integration project? Is it, if you look around, there's all kinds of ways that products are being sold in to your potential buyer. And for those are six different spheres right there um, that or vectors that you're going to have to figure out from a partnership perspective to get millions of partners down to the maybe dozens that could really help take your business forward. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds overwhelming, <laughs> right? Because it, there's so many, so much opportunity. You don't, you, if you don't have the expertise or you don't have the experience, you might not even know where to start or you won't know when, where to start um, in the beginning. Super interesting. What percentage of the partnerships that we just discussed, right? If let's say 75% are, are with indirect, how much of those are, is there money being exchanged, right? Like, so there's sometimes you could make a partnership for free if it's a co like a co-marketing initiative or you could you know we could go on and on and on so how much of that has money being exchanged i'm sure there's many different ways to exchange the money but how much of that has one dollar going here to to a different dollar to a different company yeah so again the way we used to look at it is the money changed hands at the point of sale mm -hmm. and then what would end up happening is you would sell your product at you know x number kind of that distribution wholesale number and the customer would pay list price or something in between. And in between, we call it, you know, gross to nets if you're in rev ops and in those gross to nets, you would pay a front end margin, you know, and products are somewhere between, you know, 10 and maybe even upwards of 40%, depending on what kind of product it is on front end. Then on back end, there is, you know, somewhere between three to 5% of the deal comes in market development funds, comes in spiffs and bonuses new customer bonuses, you know, all kinds of things that can happen, you know, back end. It's kind of like buying a car, <laughs> you know, the dealership might make 10% on the front end, but may make, you know, 3% on the back end for a bunch of things. And so the total margin is usually paid out at the point of sale. This is one of the big changes happening now is if one of those partners help you in one or more of those 28 moments, getting the customer to the dance, we have better tools now, like attribution tools. We have better uh, digital um, uh, sharing tools where, uh, you know, we're sharing data at scale in a protected, secure, double blind way. So there's better tools now that you can pay at the point of value instead of paying at the point of sale. And if you're paying at the point of value, if these partners are helping get that customer to the dance in your favor, we're paying out co-selling or co-marketing type of bonuses. You know, they used to be called, you know, finders fees or, or referral fees. That's if they fill out a form and you end up closing the deal, you go and pay them, you know, X dollars, like 10% of the deal where things are getting much more granular now. You know, if you do a very specific thing that, you know, every time you do it, it raises the chances the customer's going to buy my product by 10%. I might, you know, write you a check. What well, might look like market development funds but because it's not a percentage of the sale, it's actually more of a proactive payment because I want to really juice that part of the market. I want to maybe pay, pay less at the point of sale and start spreading that money both before the point of sale and as important as all of our business going to subscription and consumption, I want to pay to get a customer for life. I want to start spending that money every 30 days forever on those partners doing those very particular things that keep me that customer for life. Mm -hmm. So like 
for example, I was at Wixits at one point in my career. And so we had an affiliate team and we paid money, X amount of money for, or even if you go to their website, you can even sign up to be an affiliate and you get paid a hundred dollars for every person that goes to your website, clicks on Wix and within 30 days becomes a premium user. I believe that's the, if I remember correctly. Um, and then also offline, you could also negotiate if you are a top affiliate person. So that is a type of partner. That's not, I guess, your classic. It is still affected to point of sale. It's not B2B SaaS, obviously. It's B2B, it's B2C. But um, I guess that's like a creative type of partnership that didn't exist maybe 10 years ago um, yeah. in that sense. So it is uh, B2C. It is B2C. Mm-hmm. But it's also be a very small business, right? You know, with you know has one to four and one to nine and one to twenty four. You know, very, uh, very strong market. So this affiliate, advocate, ambassador, affinity, these type of roles are coming fast into B two B because you're not trying to win a million dollar deal. It's not the old SAP, Oracle, IBM yep. deal. You're trying to win a thirty thousand dollar pilot. Yep, absolutely. Um, there's a company called I'm name dropping companies more than ever. This podcast, there's a company that, um, I'm actually uh, now friendly with the CEO, but called thought leaders, uh, CEO and he, or his company, what they do is they help. They're like the similar web for kind of these affiliates, if you will. So they help you find the YouTube, um, influencers and they call it influencers. Um, cause that's what I guess the people that they're reaching out to data about influencers. That's what the people on YouTube want to be called influencers, but we can also call them partners or partnerships. Um, so I think that's just a, an interesting reframe um, of the market. I'm curious to hear, you mentioned a lot about the post sale and the influencers for that. I'm curious to hear some examples from you on that side, because I think I'm more familiar with the pre-sale um, types of partnerships. Yeah. So we talked about the 28 moments that get you to that point of vendor selection. Uh, for everyone now, um, it's not just making the sale. You've got to go and remake that sale every 30 days. And, and how do you do that? And most companies now are getting pretty smart in terms of predicting success. We'll call that Jeopardy customer that just hasn't adopted the product. And you know, when adoption and usage is low, your chances of getting a renewal you know, drop pretty dramatically. So who are the partnerships out there driving adoption, doing the implementations, doing the, you know, the integration work, who are, who are doing the work necessary to make it part of the habit forming of your customer, to get all their people using it, to get all their partners using it, to get everybody using it. And where it just, you, you can't, you have to have it open during the day. You have to be engaging with it. it all those metrics are mostly partnership focused. You you have your own customer success team that's trying to, you know, do webinars and they're trying to take, you know, support service calls and stuff. But in the end, you're really trying to drive a habit forming thing and understanding that that customer might have some um, partners that you wouldn't suspect are in that. So the onboarding process of your partner and, and getting them educated and trained and getting them uh, you know, maybe even incented to use your product, um, but really winning that battle out at the user level um, is an important one. And all the successful SaaS companies of the past, whether it's Salesforce in 1999 or the marketing automation companies 10 years later, 
the Marketos, the Eloquas, the HubSpots, they were really successful at making their product a significant layer in their buyer, where the buyer couldn't get a future job without having deep skills. So in 1999, a few years later, you couldn't get a job in sales without deep CRM skills. And that just became a way of the world. And right on your resume and right in the interview, people would ask about your CRM skills. The same thing went for marketing automation. You know, going into about 10 years ago, going into that decade, you know, you didn't need the technology chops to become a CMO. A few years later, you had to sit in an interview and talk about your deep automation skills to get the job. Yeah. And the no, same I- thing is happening now. Absolutely. So then let's talk about the pros and cons, I guess, of these partnerships post. Um, so for example, an in-house team, they know the product well, they're influenced to help their team succeed, maybe through stock options, payment, um, then that being their only product. Um, so there's kind of like that team, if you will, and power. <laughs> to use a better lack of term, um, versus an implementation team. They're working with 20 different techs. They're working with 30 different types of buyers, right? Some could be this industry, that industry, small, big, anyone that pays them. I'm not saying every agency is like that, but many are. Um, and then th- there must be some points where you lose some of the things that you would want to have in-house, but then there also might be some advantages of having it out of the house. Can we, let's discuss some of the pros and cons once people do start. And I specifically want to focus on post-sale um, conversation right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of scale is, is interesting and every company, like you mentioned, you know, once they get to a couple hundred employees, get to the point where they have to keep that hockey stick growth, keep happening. And what happens to a lot of companies at that point is they start to hit a plateau in terms of the capabilities of their marketing, their sales, and now their customer success teams to keep winning and onboarding new clients hits a maximum. To get after new industries, to get after new geographies, new buyers, new product adjacencies and stuff, you need to scale. So that's the point of opportunity. The, The negative on partnerships, like you said, is you don't own them. They're independently owned. And those entrepreneurs who own these businesses can go in every direction and any direction on a given whim. So, you know, there is some partnership um, skills that we've learned over the last, you know, 40 years of of how to, you know, hire the right people that can manage these partnerships, have the right processes in place, have the right programs built. You know, the average channel program that's very mature has a hundred different elements to it. So, you know, you have to recruit these partners, you have to onboard and educate and skill them up and incent them and co-sell and co-market and engage and enable. There's so many elements to the average channel program that has to be run well. And then in the end, you have to have technology, which I write the, the landscape for that has 200 companies now that make, you know, allow you to do this in a self-service, flexible, adaptable way. So this is something that needs to be actively managed not just something that's you know plugged into your current process, and that's uh, you know that's what catches a lot of companies is you know getting to that level of maturity while you enact all these partnerships. So that's um, that's kind of the the background to it. But the um, 
uh, on, on the point of, um, you know, success, it's this point of a multiplier. For every dollar you sell, how many services can be attached? How many additional pieces of software? Multiplier. And so bigger companies now are getting very smart about communicating that, not the margin. As some of the move coming away from resale, the move is now Microsoft will talk about unlocking trillions of dollars for partners and making the Microsoft story better than AWS or Google. Salesforce talks about kicking out $6.19 of opportunity for every dollar, which makes them better than other CRMs. Same with every level now. Companies are talking in terms of multipliers. And this is what uh, enables and this is what influences these entrepreneurs to say, I'm going to hook my caboose to this train that's leaving the station because I feel that I have the biggest opportunity to go get two or three dollars for every dollar they sell. And they're a channel partnership friendly company. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, super interesting. I want to go back to ops. Um, where does this ops person stand? So RevOps, in theory, to our listeners, <laughs> um, is in charge of you know the sales ops, the customer success ops. Um, I say in theory because sometimes we see that a lot of RevOps people are in, ending up doing um, sales ops, and I'm sure that's something that they are um, that hurts a little sometimes. And that's part of what our podcast is: is to help educate not just the RevOps, but also the people managing RevOps teams. But so let's assume RevOps is managing CS, sales, um, marketing ops. So then are, is there a specific a channel sales ops person or a partnership ops person? Or is the partnerships, let's say, again, company in 250, um, are they high, is their partnerships person doing the ops themselves? Is there an ops person for these partnerships? Is the RevOps person doing this in their 20% of the, or their 10% of their free time? or the free time that they don't have, they're doing the ops for the channel sales. Like who is doing the ops piece of this part? Um, you mentioned we have to make an effort for this. So who ha- is making that effort? Yeah, so this is, this is net new again. I call this the decade of the ecosystem where you know 20 years ago, the decade of sales, the decade of marketing, they've had 10 and 20 years to kind of build out this rev ops function. But I truly believe that the channel, you know, partnership ecosystem person comes into that RevOps team. And you've got, you know, today the CRO kind of handling from marketing to sales to customer success. You got RevOps doing that. But in that journey, you've got seven partners on average. And you've got a bunch of external data. You've got a bunch of external processes that you don't actually control, but needs to be brought into all that and, and managed. So over time, I think the ecosystem function will embed people in each of those stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. Um, it's interesting that it's new. Where have you seen people, where have you seen people in the ops perspective succeed not, and fail or fail is an intense word, but Mr. Mark <laughs> uh, with regards to ops and, and partnerships, at least a new way of looking at partnerships. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's all kinds of you know, points of failure, but when something's brand new, we're almost learning as we go. 
This would be like talking about sales ops in 1999. It would have been like talking about marketing ops in 2009. So we're kind of in this new early innings uh, of RevOps, but we have 40 years of channel history. So we know the mountains of data. We know the data is dirty because you might have the same customer data coming back from five different sources. You know, the distributors reporting something, the um, partner or different partners are report something back. So you're getting clusters of data that is not clean. So there's a cleansing process, you know, to normalize the data, make it predictable decision grade. Once you've actually got that done, and that's a big task. Once you've got data now that can be plugged into the data lake that you already have, now the question becomes, when does this data come? It's not as you know, predictive as your sales data is that may came on a daily, hourly basis that you can start to build. You know, your distributor may not send this back for a month. You know, your end partners may not send this back for a quarter because they're not incented to do so. So you've got this time delay, you've got this inaccuracy. So you're, you're dealing with other problems before you can introduce it into your you know, central data lake and start to take action. But in the end, it's everything. Because of those 28 moments, because of these different points of sale, and then because of these every 30 days forever, the companies that figure out the channel data, the channel automation, the best, the best RevOps teams that are plugged into this indirect side of things are going to be the winners. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'm going to throw in a shameless plug. I was trying to, I wasn't planning on it, but I, I'm a product marketer. And recently we released a partner, um, API for partner relation management system for our CPQ. And what you mentioned is exactly the way I was thinking. Uh, CPQ, again, for our listeners is configure price quote. And what the CPQ with our API would do is it would help you actually get visibility into the channel sales to know how far is that deal being closed. And then you could forecast on the channel sales. And that way you can, one, help your channel sales team be more efficient, but also you can have greater visibility. And I think that's a big piece of like a company not being under you or in the same building or in the same org structure is that visibility that you just mentioned. So that's really interesting. I'm glad I, I think I understood that when I was writing the marketing material. So that's good to hear. Um, I wanted to ask you, I sometimes, like I'm, as a product marketer, I guess I am always looking to where our, our customers are. So I guess in the end, I sometimes am doing some type of partner, uh, partners relationships because um, I'm also like reaching out to other companies that are in their industry just for co-marketing initiatives, I'm you know going to the events where people are finding even influencers online, right? So sometimes that becomes even a product marketer by accident is doing that uh, types of partnerships. Uh, but sometimes I would do the work and it wouldn't go anywhere because I wasn't a dedicated user or a dedicated or and it or it took a lot of time. So I would put in all this work. I'd have like my list and then there wouldn't be any responses and it wasn't as predictable as, for example, my marketing initiatives. I knew I could roll out a new feature in two weeks. I wasn't sure anything about this because I just don't have as much experience. Have you, what are your thoughts on like time to um, success, if you will, with some of these partnerships? How do you, how do you define that? How do you know which of the 28 po uh, points to go to 
right? If there's 28 points, am I going to X or am I going to Y or am I going to Z? Um, where do you start? What's the process, the methodology to figure that out? Yeah, so it, it's not as simple or, or linear as, as anybody would lo- love to love to have. But by the way, you know, CPQ is a very important part of those 28 moments. As you're you know, buying a car as a consumer, for example, you know, you're going around, you're looking at videos, you're going to social media, you're talking to your neighbors, you're talking to your friends. I could predict most of the moments you make when you buy a car and you're getting smarter than that salesperson at the dealer ever will be. By the way, that dealer is independently owned. Uh, 99% of cars are bought through independently owned dealers. You know, talk about an industry that's all indirect. But your 28 moments later on in the journey, you're in configuring the car, putting the rims on it, putting your colors, putting the engine in it that you want. You know, you're doing the CPQ work. You're getting what the quote is off there, usually the manufacturer's website. But then you go and try to find the invoice price somewhere else on the internet. Then you go try to find the backend rebates. So you're so smart when you walk into that dealership, you know, probably within $100, how much you're going to pay, even though they spend eight hours trying to get you a deal. CPQ in every scenario, I just used a car example, but in every scenario becomes important. Now, the question is, does a customer try to do CPQ through like a G2 crowd? Do they try to do it through a marketplace? They're going to buy seven things and they got to make sure those seven things work together. They got to make sure that they're getting the you know advantages and the know-how of other people who have tried putting those seven things together. So CPQ becomes everything later in those 28 moments. And then as you're upselling, cross-selling every 30 days forever, enriching the contract, CPQ, again, becomes a thing every 30 days forever. So it's one of those really important technology layers that every company has to think about. So to your question is, you know, this is complicated. It's, it's you know, celestial. It's not linear. You know, it goes back to the buyer always. And if you've got a particular buyer, you just got to ask as a product marketer, you got to ask three very simple questions. What do they read? Where do they go? And who do they follow? You know, I've got a mid-sized clinic with 50 doctors in upstate New York that I'm trying to win as a potential you know, part of my TAM, you know, from Buffalo to Rochester, to Syracuse, to Albany, who's wrapped around that buyer? Now, there's 30 different ways to read who's writing the ebooks, who's getting on page one of Google, et cetera. You know, where do they go? Do they go to a chamber of commerce? Do they go to a local roadshow? Do they fly to Las Vegas? You know, where are they actually attending? And then finally, every market in the law of a few, this is kind of your Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. In the law of a few, if I want to win mid sized clinics in upstate New York, there's literally 100 people that drive that market. And every other market that I mentioned before, by industry, by buyer, by geography, any market you want to win boils down to 100 people. They're the ones writing the eBooks, recording the podcasts. They're the ones speaking at that event in Vegas. They sit on the boards of those associations. They're in the chamber of commerce. Like These are the super connectors. And so if I want to win that as a product marketer, I need a repeating process. And of those 100 people, all of them are potential partners of yours, not resellers, but partnerships to make you successful. If those 100 people, even if 20 of them say something nice about you on their platform, your upstate mid-sized clinic business is going to double and triple quickly because you're in the conversation. You're going to get invited into these watering holes. And that's the way. And now rinse and repeat those three questions for every potential market you want to win. You want to go win Germany now? Perfect. 
repeat those three questions, get to the watering holes, get to the people at those watering holes, and get 20 of them to say something nice about you and invite you in, your business in Germany just tripled. And your job as a RevOps person in the partnerships world is to get this process to be repeatable and scalable. Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners, I apologize that this became about me, <laughs> but I, I, I think it will, it is helpful. I hope uh, to also our listeners. Um, I think that's some real good advice, Jake. So thank you. Um, cool. So we covered a lot. I think for me, the biggest thing is the, the redefinition of partnerships and how partnerships is really business almost. <laughs> and uh, because it like, if you took out the word partner, I'm like, oh, it just sounds like you're doing a business or you're doing, you're running a company and that partnerships is so integral. I think I didn't realize how much partnerships were involved with some of the bigger companies like Microsoft, 96% is a crazy number. So obviously if you're selling to that Microsoft ecosystem, I think deal hub has, we have a Microsoft Alliance person um, internally, but we have to have that person, right? Because exactly as you said, 96%. So you want to be there. Um, you want to be at that table when people are talking about it. They're also mentioning Deal Hub. And you want to find also the incentives for those partners, right? So his job is different, is different than mine. My job is, you know, maybe to talk to our users and say that it's no code. Him, he has to talk a different language because if it's no code, maybe their implementations go down, right? Because uh, then the, it's quicker for them to do. So he has to talk more about easy, easy to use and stickiness and different values that would want that um, to get the partner to make their customers happy versus I'm showing it's happy because implementation time is short. So it's really fascinating, I think, from that perspective, working with partners, understanding what's important for them um, and that value. And um, I think the last thing that's super interesting is that um, what I think I'm this whole podcast is interesting, but one last, I guess, pillar, if you will, is what you brought that this is like the new breed, the new age. Um, I, I love that because it really shows, um, I mean, people have been talking about it, I would say like, you know, internally or, or even socially with friends, but um, those processes are just beginning. Um, the fact that management could even avoid even to management could decide to do some of these type of partnerships without even hiring a, a partnerships person. And that partnerships could be focused on certain types of partnerships, like bigger ones, but there could be a team internally focusing on, you know, just affiliates or just uh, that, I think, it, or influencers. I think that's also really interesting and we'll see that transition expand. Um, so I think those are really interesting and I really appreciate Jay you uh, joining this. I, I'm looking forward to continuing following you on LinkedIn. Um, I think all of our listeners should um, follow you on LinkedIn after this call or after this podcast, if they um, got any value um, and then I'm sure they did, they should definitely follow you. Um, are there any other insights or any thoughts that you wanted to leave out us with our, our listeners? Cause you're just a wealth of information. So I, I don't want to stop, but, I, but any, any last, last comments or thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, thank you for having me. And um, this isn't just technology companies. You know, every pharma company, every bank and insurance company, every manufacturer, every company in all 27 industries is thinking about ecosystems. 
You know, Accenture did a survey a while back that said 76% of CEOs think that their current business model will be unrecognizable in five years. And ecosystems were the number one reason why. No one can do it alone. And you can watch every industry as they go into, you know, become technology companies themselves. And as they're building partnerships, not only with the big players, but with the medium and small size players to build out their own future business model. And we're all a part of that. Subscription and consumption models will be everywhere. And these companies will look more and more and more like technology companies. Just go look at the latest car business news. When you know the CEO of Ford last week is calling out dealerships and, and questioning what their value is going to be in the future. When they go electric, then they go self-driving, and then they go transportation as a service. What does TAS mean to everybody? And it becomes really interesting. And you could walk through all examples. And we're at the kind of the intersection now. I call it the decade of the ecosystem, but this is an intersection of which, you know, books will be written, you know, in, in decades to come about this point in history where no company can do it alone. Awesome. I'm looking forward to this decade. Uh, Jay, <laughs> thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And we'll be in touch for sure. All right. Thank you so much. 